What I want to do right now is I want for us to uh, all stand, and we're going to read a passage of Scripture, and then uh, I'll pray, and then we'll get to work. The passage of Scripture that we're going to read is out of the book of Romans, chapter 6. We're going to read, it's kind of a fairly lengthy passage of Scripture, um, but this is sort of the predominant New Testament text on what baptism is all about. Paul writes about it. It's a passage that I've, I've preached on several years over the past um, for you to kind of think about and consider with regard to what baptism is all about. Um, and I'll, I'll read it, I'll pray, and then we'll jump in and try to follow this theme of baptism. Romans chapter 6 verse 1 starts off by saying this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue sin that grace might abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus were also baptized into his death? We are buried, therefore, with him in baptism, into his death, in order that, just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we have been united with him in death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in the resurrection just like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be bought or brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has any dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he now lives, we now live to God. Or he lives to God, and we also live to God within him. Verse 11, he says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not, be, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been bought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for what you have done in Jesus. And God, I pray this morning that you would help the truth, the reality of that, to not only be learned or observed or seen, but to be entered into. God, if there's anybody here this morning that is living their lives still under the administration of sin. In other words, where sin continues to oppress and enslave the overall arc and direction and passions and desires of their life. God, I ask you this morning, would you liberate them? Would you set them free and deliver them over to the love and the grace and the life that you have freely given to them through Jesus? So we ask this morning as well that there be, if there be any here today that, uh, who are followers of you but have not yet been baptized, God, may you prompt their hearts to follow you all the way into this incredible moment of baptism. So we just commit this morning in your hands. We pray that you would open our hearts, our eyes, our minds, and our understanding to see you in the beauty of Scripture and what you've done for us. And so we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? And uh, what I want to do is I, as we've kind of been in this little journey, we've been starting off each 
little section with just kind of a, a minor little definition so that we can sort of be on the same page as to what we're talking about. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to read uh, just a little bit of a definition I was kind of working on with regard to what, de- uh, what baptism is. So next slide, kind of show you a little bit about uh, a definition that I was thinking about for this. So uh, baptism is the act that one does declaring that they pass from a state of death, which would be like enslavement. Are the slides working? They're not, are they? Maybe they are. Oh, there we go. Good, good, good. So baptism is the act which declares that one has passed from death or enslavement uh, and alienation to God. Because that, that is what death is. If you're wondering what, how does the Bible define death? So death, in one hand, is definitely a physical alienation, which means your spirit has left the actual physicality of your body. But there's a complexity of death because death is not just physical death, uh, cessation of life. But it's also enslavement to sin. In other words, uh, submitting to the power of sin. But it's also alienation from, from God himself. So baptism is the act which declares that one is passed from death, or enslavement to sin, alienation from God, to life. That's the basic gist of what baptism is all about. Next slide. going to give you a little bit of a, a background of as, as how I was thinking about this. That the New Testament practice of baptism. Because I was thinking through, like, like, where did we get the idea of baptism from? Depending upon your tradition or your background, like for example, I was, I was brought up Catholic, and so within my tradition of Christianity, of what I was brought up in, uh, the idea of baptism was something that was, was done at a very early age. So kind of shortly after birth, mom or dad would take you down, and they would go through this process of, of baptizing. Obviously with the priest right there, you would have your, your little baptismal gown and all that, and they would baptize you. And again, there's a whole reason behind that, which I'm, I'm not going to get into right now, but there's, the point that I would make is, regardless of what type of tradition, if you came from any form of Christian tradition, uh, there was some sort of backstory as to where and how baptism was formed within the context of Christianity that you're from. Um, but the idea, like where did we get the overarching idea of baptism? That's, that's what I want to look at today. It didn't originate in the Catholic Church. It didn't originate in Eastern Orthodoxy. It didn't originate you know, in any other type of Christian church tradition. It actually originates deeply within uh, the Bible itself. And that's what I want to explore. So this is what I wrote. The New Testament practice of baptism was formed by the overlaying of several rich Old Testament stories and themes upon each other. And that's what we'll look at this morning. So this, the idea that we just read in Romans chapter 6 of getting baptized, the thing that we're going to do next week, and by practical you know, application what that means, if you are going to get baptized, uh, somebody or a couple of people will take you, and we will be gentle, of course, and we will take you, and we will, we will either, you know, backwards or forwards, there's like no rhyme or rhythm as to why, but we will, we're going to put you underwater, but we're not going to leave you there, because that would be called a drowning, so we're going we're gonna to pick you back up out of the water. So that, that whole thing, like, where does that come from? Why do we do that? Why is that something that the New Testament followers of, of Jesus did? And this is, this is what's fascinating about this, is that this idea, this practice of baptism is, has this rich history in the Old Testament. And if you think of it this way, there's multiple stories that kind of get overlaid over each other all throughout the Old Testament. And we're going to read those stories. So, because I, I want them to make sense to you as you think about this, this actual practice. I think it's actually helpful too, because in a lot of ways, we live in a culture where things lose meaning rapidly. You agree with that? 
So we learn certain ideas and concepts, and, and especially if those things and concepts are just you know, created instantaneously, if they're, just, if they're fake news, uh, at some point we become either suspicious of them and we don't enter into them. So if something is suspicious to you, rather than you boldly embracing and entering into it, we stand off at a distance, arms folded, and we're just like, I'm not going to do that. And unfortunately, I think that's been the posture for a lot of Christians with regard to things like baptism or communion. Like, I'm not going to do that. That's, that's weird. Going in the water, why would I do that? And the point that I would make is this, is that in some ways that's reflective of our culture, where we have inherited an overwhelming amount of information. Because, A, we don't know where that information has come from, or we don't know how to process that information. We're deeply suspicious of it, so we only allow certain bits of information into our heart, and other bits of information we reject. And unfortunately, I would suggest that many of us as followers of Jesus, we reject bits of information and ideas and practices that we really should engage, but instead of engaging boldly, we, we, we reject it. Um, and sometimes I think it's due to the fact that we don't understand where it came from or why we do it or how it plays into the overarching Bible story itself. So that's, what I, that's, that's my hope here this morning is to try to not necessarily create a convincing argument for you, but to just give you the data. And let the Holy Spirit do the work that the Holy Spirit wants to do through Scripture, through this story, through uh, just the hope of the Holy Spirit working on our hearts and, and, and opening up our desires so that we would step into all that God has for us and not reject anything that God has for us just because something might not make sense or whatever. So my hope is to kind of pull back the veil to bring into uh, the clarity, hopefully, some of the sense behind this big New Testament practice we call baptism. How are we doing? You guys okay? Good. Let's jump in. What I want to do this morning is I want to basically look at a handful of narratives that I think this concept of baptism basically is derived from. Well, I mean, there's, there could be a whole lot more that we would look into, um, but these are the ones that I've just simply chosen and selected. So first of all, we'll take a look at the creation narrative, the flood narrative, the exodus narrative, the Jordan crossing. Isaiah has some references to these things we'll kind of pull together. We'll read some New Testament passages, and, and we'll be done. That's, that's it. That's kind of the framework for today. So let's first of all jump in and take a look at the subject that's found within the creation narrative itself. Some of these I'm going to be reading. I don't necessarily have scriptures up on the screen for all of these, so if you guys have a Bible, make sure that you have it open to these. Hopefully the scriptures will be... Yeah, they're all right there, so you can take a look and follow along if you'd like. So Genesis chapter 1, I want to read a couple of these passages. I'll make a couple of statements, we'll move on. So Genesis chapter 1, we're told about this story, that God, in the beginning, creates the heavens and the earth. And just listen to how it plays out. Genesis chapter 1, it says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So whatever's happening on this intro scene of Genesis chapter 1 is this vast landscape that, that Yahweh has created. And the bits of information that we're told is that there, there are waters. And upon the waters, it says that the, uh, the, the Ruach, the breath of God, the spirit of God is brooding, flying, however you want to think of it, over the face of these waters. What is he doing? What is the Holy Spirit doing? Uh, verse 9, it goes on to say, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. 
So whatever's happening here, again, there's a lot that can be talked about and unpacked here, but one of the things that we know for sure is that the, the waters that we see here, the Holy Spirit was going over the waters, and we, we know for life to happen, you do need water, but you, but you need something more than water, right? If all you have is water, uh, you, you, you're not going to actually have human life. In order, in order for human life to flourish, you have to have dry land, right? This is like, I, I, you know, biology, I think, maybe one-on-one, but you have to have dry land, you have to have the ability to grow crops and all these other types of things. So what God does, he creates out of the water. He separates from the water dry land. And this is what God says, and it was as good. So what we can surmise from this first storyline is that from the water came life and flourishing. So this creation narrative, from water comes life and flourishing. And you might even add, with that comes this uh, assessment from God where God says, and it's good. So God says it's good for this land to be separated from water. So again, thinking theme. Now that's maybe our first layer, our first image, first theme, first picture. It's going to be superimposed upon another image. Fast forward to the book of Genesis chapter 6. So just a handful of chapters forward. Uh, we know within the storyline, God creates human beings, human beings are invited to partner with God, to obey God, which, you know, partnership with God basically just looks like loving God, loving obedience to God. Adam and Eve uh, were, rather than trusting, loving God, they disobeyed God. They basically assess the landscape, and they think we, we can do a better job at governing and leading our lives uh, ourselves, and then it brings about, literally unleashes chaos upon creation, chaos into their lives, chaos between them and God, chaos between them and creation. In other words, life itself becomes extremely complex and complicated because of sin, chaos being unleashed. Uh, One scholar describes it's the forces of anti-creation being spread upon the earth. So God breathed forth uh, creation. Creation is good. Creation brings life. The forces of anti-creation seek to undermine and undo Everything that God is up to. By the way, that is what sin is. Anytime we choose to, rather than partner with God, we say no to God, we are unleashing into our lives and perhaps the lives of other people and between us and God, forces of anti-creation or chaos. That's what happens. That's what sin does. So into the storyline, we see that God breaks through in Genesis chapter 6. I'll read a couple passages to you guys. Just follow along. You can listen. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth, and that every intention of his thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And then it says, And it grieved the heart of God. So it's an interesting thing to think about. What is God's response to man's rebellion? Grief. It's grief. Let me ask you this. Um, If you have ever been in a relationship with somebody closely where you have become vulnerable before them, you've opened your heart up to them, and they've done something so profoundly in opposition to you, uh, what's the response? I mean, it could be anger. I mean, there's a variety of responses. But one of the core emotions is is grief. You feel this deep sense of, ah, this is not the way it should have been. This is not how it could have been. Uh, life could have been radically different, but this is what God's response is, is grief. 
And it goes on to say, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, birds of the heaven. And now, and then goes on to say in verse 8, But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that God brings a flood, or a flood comes, or God, uh, God allows a flood to break open upon the earth. And we're told some of the graphic details within a story that it says that the, the, the fountains of the deep break open. So something splits and all of a sudden, waters are unleashed upon the planet or within a region or however uh, long or extensive, whatever it is. But we do know that there was a flood and it, it brings devastation. So a way that we can summarize this is that within this flood narrative, we see that the chaos of water, because that's, that's what we're beginning to see now, is water is, has, has a chaotic element to it. Water brings destruction. That's where the destruction of life comes from in this story, is it comes from water. So water becomes sort of like this, this image of death, like a grave, a watery grave. The chaos of water confronts the chaos of humanity, because there's two forms of chaos going on here. The chaos of humans saying no to God and bringing disruption and destruction upon their lives. And God says we will have to deal with the chaos of humanity by way of the chaos of the waters and addressing sin, rebellion, while God carries, and this is where the story gets really fascinating, God actually carries a remnant through the floodwaters. That's the story of, of, of uh, Noah. And that's where it says in verse 9, but Noah found favor in the eyes of, of God. So we, we have this image of Noah being buoyed up, carried through the floodwaters, so that life is carried through death. You guys, you guys following the theme so far? You guys doing all right? All right, this, this gets really, really fascinating in the storyline. Just what we're trying to do is point out kind of the, 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 the big themes and let the scripture speak for itself and to try to uh, surmise what, what's happening here in these stories and then allow them, allow the authors to kind of superimpose them upon each other. And hopefully this will all make sense as, as we kind of land the plane in just a moment. The third uh, story or theme that we see is this next one, which is the idea of the Exodus narrative. And this is a handful of particular passages. I'll read these. Exodus chapter 14. It's the story when uh, the people of Israel were there in Egypt. And uh, in Egypt, they were under the heavy-handed task mastery. Is, is, that, is that a word? Task mastery? It's a great word. I just made it up, I think. I like it. If you want to use it, make sure you give me credit. Task mastery of Pharaoh. And uh, Pharaoh is sort of this epitome of, of domination, of destruction, of oppression. And so we see within this particular story that it says that uh, God hears the cries of the people of Israel and God wants to deliver them. So what we have here is oppression, destruction, slavery, enslavement, literally, a people group, a minority people group are enslaved by the powerful uh, Pharaoh who is sort of this militaristic, domineering, powerful oppressor. And God, God steps in. God says, I hear the cries of my people and I will step in and I will rescue them. Now, how God rescues them becomes really significant. Not only to the rest of the story of the Bible, but also for the rest of the people of Israel's history. Like how they see God's deliverance step in. This gets really fascinating. So we're told essentially that the children of Israel... Uh, were to run away from Pharaoh. Pharaoh allows them to depart as they go out. We're told in a story in Exodus chapter 14, I'm picking it around verse 9. It says, So the Egyptians, they pursued the Israelites, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots, and his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them as they encamped by the sea of Pi-Hirath in front of something. 
name that I can't even pronounce. Verse 21, it goes on to say, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea. Before we get to that, so I, I want you to imagine in your mind, here's the people of Israel um, under the oppression of, of Pharaoh. Um, they are able to run away. So imagine, I don't know, a million to 200 or, or to 2 million people strong, very large community of people out in the middle of the wilderness. So imagine on either side is a, a mountain range. So they're kind of like in a valley. And before them is this massive sea. So some scholars debate as to whether or not it's called the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds. Uh, for our sake, it's the, the point of the matter is, is on either side are mountains. So they obviously can't climb up the mountains. They're, and in front of them is this sea. And behind them is Pharaoh's army. So literally, these guys are in a place of, of death. Or it looks, it looks like imminent death for them. There's no way out, no hope, no future. Um, and then they begin to complain because they begin to pick up on this and they realize like, wow, um, we're dead. And they begin to complain to God like, God, why would you have brought us out into the wilderness to just simply die? You call this deliverance. We call this death. But when you're dealing with Yahweh and the God of all things, he has things up his sleeve that nobody really even ever takes into consideration. And again, this is where we begin to see this image. In front of them is this body of water. That body of water is going to become the means through which God's going to deliver them. So again, this theme of water, which is kind of chaotic. In front of them, they can't just go swimming in the water. They die. It's chaos. Uh, it's a chaos realm. Um, but so in order for them to be saved from the water, God's going to have to do a miracle for them through them. So again, Picking up in the story, verse 21, it says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, the chaotic waters, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind. All night he made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. Verse 22, uh, The people of Israel, they went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Do you get that picture? Where's the people of Israel? They're, they're literally walking through between two massive walls of water. Uh, there's wind blowing, very strong wind, we're told. Again, there's some details in the text. It's always good to pay attention to the text and what it's declaring. So what we see, there's, there's a strong wind that's blowing. We see waters uh, departed. We see things divided. We see uh, them walking across. We see God literally delivering them. Now listen to how in the very next story, so if you want to think about it this way, Exodus chapter 14 is sort of the raw data of how God delivered them. Exodus chapter 15, someone writes, writes a song about the story. So uh, the first one is historical, the second one is, is poetry. And, and, and you know that oftentimes poetry employs words and idioms and metaphors that are not necessarily literal, but the idea is to basically point to literal happenstances that take place. So listen to how the story gets kind of put into a song or spun into music. Exodus chapter 15, verses 12 to 13. Just listen. It says of God, you stretched out your right hand. Pay, pay attention carefully to these details. You stretch out your right hand. So again, Exodus, the Exodus, the parting of the waters, the deliverance of God's people, and the connection with the right hand of God. So God stretches out his right hand and the waters swallowed up the Egyptian army. Verse 13, it says, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. So again, we, we added another word to this. So to that particular whole storyline, we have the word redeemed. 
So God rescues, redeems, saves his people from the great tyrant, the oppressor, the one that enslaves. Again, so we're building upon stories. We're adding to the concept of water, of God bringing deliverance, God bringing life, God bringing order out of chaotic waters, God making good in something that otherwise would be horrible, right? So, So you know, again, just put it in the context, had God not stepped in to the people of Israel, there in that predicament, what would have happened? Massive slaughter. Massive slaughter. These are, these are people that are weaponless in the midst of the militaristic world superpower of the world, right? And they, they would have all been slaughtered. That's, or you know, a handful of them would have been enslaved back into a horrible life as well. But God delivers them from the slavery and the oppression and the oppressor of Egypt. So again, uh, who are the redeemed and the rescued in this particular context? It's God's people. Those who followed God. Uh, where do they follow God? They followed God through the waters. You following so far? Through the waters. This becomes a really important idiom that plays into the rest of the formation of this New Testament concept that we would call baptism. So next idiom or metaphor we can look at or idea or narrative is the fourthly the idea of the Jordan and the promised land narrative all right so I want you to just listen to some of the passages I'll read and then we'll kind of summarize with another little thought here uh, let me let me summarize the the, the last one sorry I, I think I skipped that so the chaos of the water which is the Red Sea the chaos of the water uh, confronts the chaos of evil God's controlling it God's in control of this uh, evil oppression and enslavement uh, which is depicted by, uh, can, can you go to the, the slide with a little uh, image? Um, I think it's just before this one. There you go. The chaotic water which separates the wilderness, uh, which is death. Sorry, the, the one before this one. Sorry, sorry, sorry. There we go. The chaos of the water confronts the chaos of evil, oppression, and enslavement. So Egypt, uh, the empire, Pharaoh, while God delivers his people. So this is, this is what we see kind of derived from that concept of this Exodus narrative. So let's, let's jump into the Jordan promised land narrative. Um, this is in Joshua chapter 3. So if you remember the story of the people of Israel, they come out of Egypt. They spend the next 40 years in the wilderness. God's taking care of them. He's providing for them water from a rock and manna and all this type of stuff. And so 40 years, they make their way through the wilderness. And now it's about time for them to enter into what's called the promised land. Um, why is it called the promised land? It's because God promised it to their forefather, uh, forefathers. And he also describes this as a, as a land that's identified as a land flowing with milk and honey, which just another way of basically saying it's full of life, full of life. It's, and again, that's contrasted with what? The wilderness. All right, if, you have, if you're trying to figure out in your mind, what does the wilderness look like? All right, if you want a nice graphic image of what, quote unquote, the wilderness looks like, uh, drive on the 45, uh, so go to Paso, hop on the 45, go for about 45 minutes, that long, okay, right where the 45 and the 41 meets, you know what I'm talking about? 46. Or sorry, 46, so the 46, I don't I never drive, I don't like driving, so the 46 and the 41, is that correct? There's that, that, that Y intersection, so that whole area right there, as far as you can see, that's wilderness. In fact, uh, ge- geologically, it's very similar to what you would actually find in, in Israel. There's just nothing there. Total deadness as far as the eye could see. So imagine living there for 40 years 
where you're trying to eke out some form of life and existence out in the middle of this wilderness, and you're on the verge of God saying, I'm going to bring you into a promised land. But there's something that separates you as a people from the promised land and, and this wilderness. And what, that's what we're told is, is actually this Jordan River. This Jordan River, again, pay attention to names. The Jordan River is an important distinction that separates from wilderness, death, and promised land, life. Okay, just listen to how this plays out. In Joshua chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, he says, And then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves. So here they are as a people group sitting on the, on the, on the edge of entering into the promised land. It, it's not an easy, I mean, there's, again, there's no bridges back then. There, there is a, there's a river that's in the middle of flood season, right? If you've ever seen a river in the middle of flood season, and here you are, maybe 2 million to 3 million strong. Many of the people, part of your company, are old or very young, so you're definitely not going to cross over a river in this type of state. So again, you are at a, you're at a place where it looks like, it looks like, according to conventional wisdom, there's no possible way you're going to get over this river unless some form of deliverance comes in and helps you through. You following? So, in other words, this river literally spells out your death. Follow? It will become the end of you as a nation. So, here's what we see in the story. Joshua chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves. Tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and they went before the people. So this little bit of information is also really important as well. Who, who is the very first person or first people group, a group of peoples, individuals, to actually step into the water to then begin to follow across? It's, it's the priest. The priest. And we're also told the Ark of the Covenant. So whatever the Ark of the Covenant is, if you can imagine or think about this thing from Raiders of the Lost Ark, something, something along those lines, that is what enters in with the priest as they're carrying it. They're the ones. So, so if you want to think of it this way, whatever the fate of the priests are, is going to be the fate of the people. Just follow along. Whatever the fate of the priest is, is going to be the fate of the people. So Genesis, or Joshua chapter 3, uh, verses 8 through 13, just again, listen to the story. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all of the earth. This, this is a fascinating little detail. Like, why does the Old Testament author describe God as, or Yahweh, as the God of all the earth, the God of all dry land, the God of all dirt, the God of all creation. Why, why describe Yahweh with this adjective or this description that he is the God of all the earth? Well, this becomes really important because whoever the God of all the earth is, he's going to do something to control the earth, to control the elements that otherwise would bring chaos and death into life into their lives and disrupt them, destroy them. He's going to do something to disrupt the chaos and to bring about a path of order. You, you follow him so far? He says, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take 12 men from the tribes in each tribe of man, and when the soles of their feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the ark of all the earth, the Lord of all the earth, show again, the phrase is repeated a second time, which obviously is important. It shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off. Something will be separated 
uh, break open, shall be cut off from the flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So again, another miracle. The God of all the earth apparently has power to do that, right? So when the God of all the earth stands up, he has the ability to speak to creation itself and to cause it to do what he wants it to do. In this case, he somehow orders this river to be cut off and it stops. Verse 17, he goes on and says, Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground. So again, if you're paying attention to these images, what, what type of ground is it? Dry ground, right? Do you see the overlaying of the Exodus story? What type of ground did the people of Israel cross over, over the, within the Red Sea? Dry ground. Why is the author doing this? Uh, I mean, I, my guess is that it obviously happened, but this is a detail that's added. And I think there's a reason why it's added, to somehow show there's a continuity, there's an overlaying of images to cause us to step back, to look and to assess the whole story, the whole narrative, that somehow Yahweh, God, is standing up and bringing about a great deliverance. It says, they stand on a dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all of Israel was passing over dry ground until the nation finished passing over the Jordan. So to kind of give a little bit of summary to this, next slide, uh, the way I kind of describe this is that we see that the chaotic water, which separates wilderness, death, from promised land, flowing with milk and honey or life, is overcome by God as he carries his people through it. This is what we see, again, because kind of playing out some themes and ideas. Now, take a look at Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. We're kind of making our way through this. We're almost done. Isaiah 11. You guys doing all right? It's a lot of stuff. I get it, but hopefully it all makes sense in the end. Isaiah chapter 11. Again, we're trying to think about themes of how this idea would have been composed or brought together to form what we call this New Testament activity called baptism. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 11 through 12. I'll just read this. I'll make some quick comments and move on. Isaiah chapter 11 says this. In that day, the Lord will be, or the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time. Pause. When was the first time God extended his hand? Egypt. Remember we read that? Egypt, over the Red Sea. It's in the story, in the song. It says God stretched out his right hand, or God stretched out his hand, and he brought deliverance. So, so what's Isaiah saying? Again, Isaiah would have written this you know, many hundreds of years after the Moses story. And what we see with regard to Isaiah is we see that Isaiah is saying God will extend his hand a second time. This next time that God is going to extend his hand is going to be important. So I think what the writer Isaiah is describing is a second exodus. Another time when another group of God's people will be delivered. From what? It goes on to say, in that day, the Lord will extend his hand a second time to recover the remnant. Again, important imagery or wording being used here. Where does the idea of remnant come from? You guys remember in the story that we just read? The second analogy? Your second story? The flood. Good. Who said that? Good job. The flood. Right. Good job. Yes. The flood. What God, God brings a remnant out of the flood. So do you already see what Isaiah is doing? He's superimposing two images. The exodus the flood, and then he, then he goes on to elaborate this incredibly complex and beautiful image of what Yahweh is going to step in and do. In fact, the verse just before this, he describes that God will raise up a branch. Are you familiar with the branch passage? And this branch will be from the lineage of David. In other words, the Messiah. Whoever, whoever this Messiah figure will be, he will come, he will have power and control and authority, and he will deliver God's people. 
Then it goes on to say, from Assyria and Egypt and Pathros and Cush and Elam and Shinar and Hamath and all the coastlands of the sea. So whoever is about to come, he's going to bring a great deliverance, such a great deliverance that all of these particular regions, people from all of these regions will be brought in. So he's referring to what's called the scattering to the nations. So the people of Israel, rather than being one unified nation living in a ge- geographical region called, you know, Palestine or Israel or whatever, they're scattered all around the nations. And the hope is that Isaiah is envisioning that one of these days, God will raise up a deliverer, and this deliverer will bring all people from all the nations, which in this place, the idea of nations becomes almost like a chaotic ocean. They're scattered everywhere. It's the opposite of harmony. It's the opposite of shalom. It's the opposite of order. That the people have been scattered all around. They're they're in the midst of chaos. And the hope would be one day, God will provide someone that will bring about a reordering of his people. Now again, you can fast forward, and this is kind of a side note, kind of a little bit of a rabbit trail. I'm not going to focus too much on this. But you can think about Acts chapter 2. In the book of Acts, you see uh, the, the, the writer tells us that the Holy Spirit comes, and all of a sudden, Peter stands up, and he's begins to speak in tongues, in unknown language, and it tells us that there are all these people from all different nations. They're hearing. And this is, this is I think this is uh, Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, it's his attempt to nod at, at this. It's his attempt to basically acknowledge the fact that, yeah, remember that? Remember all of God's people were scattered all around? This is God stepping in and bringing order out of chaos. This is absolutely amazing. So within the story, we see Isaiah continue. He says, and he will raise a signal for the nations, or raise a banner for the nations, uh, and they will assemble, and they will, uh, they will assemble banished, the, the banished of Israel, the, and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. In verse 16, it says, and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was in Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. So what we see here right now, again, is the superimposing of various images of a remnant, of the people of Israel, of the Exodus, of God rescuing. you following along so far. Fast forward real quick to the story of Jesus. So Mark chapter 1, we see a handful of these. There's a handful of passages that refer to Jesus' baptism. This is the one that I want to just briefly take a look at. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. It says this, in those days, Jesus from Nazareth, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John, where? In the Jordan. That's ironic. I mean, of course it happened, but again, this is a detail that the writer is very well aware as to what he's attempting to state. And it goes on to say, it says in verse 10, and when they came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens Tearing apart, opening up, which, again, are you reading this? This creates images of a handful of things. The, the seas parting. This also creates an image from the book of Isaiah where it says, I will rend the heavens and I will come down. Yahweh will enter in. Yahweh will come upon his people. You see these images, the idea of declaring that he is my beloved son. These are Old Testament images that even God describes the people of Israel were like my beloved son that I rescued from, the, from their en- enslavement in Egypt. And he goes on to say in verse uh, 11, And a voice came down from heaven, You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. In verse 12, And immediately uh, the Spirit drove him out in the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days. Again, 40 days. Why? Why? 
Because the author is trying to connect Jesus with this long history of the people of Israel who have gone through chaotic waters. Who have not only gone through chaotic waters, but have also been contributors, get this, to the chaos in the world. This is the human story. And this is exactly what Jesus does. Jesus is basically saying that I'm stepping into this world to allow the chaos, the evil, the consequences of sin and rebellion and turning away from God to allow all of that to come upon me. I will allow the floodwaters to overcome me to the ultimate point of death. I will go through. I will be the high priest that will go through, pass through the waters, allow the waters to do what waters do, which is to drown and to kill. But I'll come out the other end. It's three days later. We know that's where the story continues. He rises and he calls people forward to follow him. So in short, what we see is that baptism is this idea of saying, I identify with Jesus. Let me finish with this final passage. I'm, I'm done. First uh, Peter chapter three, verses eighteen through twenty-two. Just listen to this, and I'll make a couple of comments, and I'm done. First Peter chapter three, verses eighteen through twenty-two. It says this: For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they for, the formerly did not obey when God's patience waited for the days of Noah. So again, what, what, what Peter's doing is he's superimposing this Old Testament image of Noah onto this New Testament practice of baptism. And he goes on to say, he says, um, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, was brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not by the removal of dirt. So in other words, he's quickly saying that, look, the actual act of going into water and being baptized by somebody, that's, that's not going to save you. you. You will not be rescued from your enslavement to sin because it can't do that. It might wash your body, but that doesn't wash your soul. But it's, it's the act that points to the ultimate act, which ultimately saves us. In verse 21, he says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God as to a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is now at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to all. So in short, or in closing, the thing that we need to think about is to sort of take all of these Old Testament ideas, or at least the ones that we looked at, and think about them. As, and how they form this New Testament concept of what it means and why to be baptized. So in short, it basically goes something like this. The idea of being baptized is the idea of following Jesus into the grave, which presupposes that there is chaos in our lives. Chaos which has happened to you by way of someone else's sin and rebellion against God. But it, we're not just all victims here. We have all played victimizing parts. That's the thing. That's the complexity of the human nature. We are also victimizers. We have played, we have contributed to the chaos and brokenness into the lives of other people through our own rebellion to God. And yet, in the midst of this, 
we find that the, that the result of the chaos of our lives is the chaos of this world. And the chaos of this world cannot go on forever without it being confronted. And this is what Jesus comes to do, to confront it. By allowing it to do to him what it always does to us. Kill him. But those who follow this Jesus into the grave will also follow him out of the grave. And that is why we do baptism. It's this profound image is that if you are somebody in your life that has had your life through Jesus, had the chaos of your own sin, your own brokenness, your own rebellion, confronted by Jesus, and then come out the other end into life, then that's what baptism is all about. So the question is not so much, why should I be baptized? But the real question is, why should I not be baptized? What would hinder me from actually following Jesus into every form and practice that he invites me to follow him into? So that being said, the real question is this question of what story do you belong to? What story does your life identify with? Is it the story of chaos being overcome by order? Is it the story of death, destruction, and rebellion being overcome by incredible love and care and compassion? Is it the story of someone whose soul has been defiled and soiled by our own uh, sin and uh, rebellion and forces of anti-creation at work in our own hearts and chaos that have happened to us and chaos that we have created in the lives of other people being overcome by order and peace. If that's the story you find yourself in, then the invitation would be to just follow Jesus all the way to the point of saying, I will step into those waters and come out the other end completely, fully in obedience to the one who loves me and gave himself for me. If your story's not there, the invitation is always the same every single week. To let today be the day in which the chaos loses its power over you. To let today be the day in which enslavement of sin and simple desires and simple proclivities and actions loses grip upon your soul. To be invited to become a new person tra- transformed by the power of Jesus. So I don't know where you're at today, but we're going to respond right now by singing, by partaking of communion as we go to the table and we eat the bread and we dip the bread. Pay attention real carefully. carefully, And we dip the bread into the cup. And we dip the bread into the cup. Sorry. Uh, meaning don't, 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 don't sip it. Just dip the bread in the cup as a way of reminding ourselves of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And we will respond by praying. And if you have prayer needs at all, things that are going through, that you're going through in your life, you need prayer. We want to be able to pray for you. So how about we all stand? I'm going to give you an opportunity if you're here this morning and, and either, I, I want to suggest two things. One, if you're here this morning and maybe you've never been baptized, um, I want to, I'm going to pray for you today that God would give you courage and boldness to take that step of, of being baptized. And secondly, I want, to, I want to pray for those of you that maybe either don't know Jesus or you feel far from Jesus or you feel as if you just need a touch from Jesus uh, to, to have God transform you. So let me pray real quick and then we'll just continue to worship. So God, we thank you for your presence here this morning that you love us. You've given yourself to us. Jesus said you've gone before us. So now we respond.
by wanting to follow you with all of our heart. Uh, if you're here this morning and maybe you are a follower of Jesus and you've never been baptized, and this is, I, I want to ask you that if, if that's you, you would like to be baptized, I would love to, love to see you right now. If, if that's you, raise your hand. If you're willing to take that step, and I want to just pray for you because it takes a lot of courage to do that. Anybody at all, you just kind of feel like, that's me, I need to get baptized. Rad, I see you. Anybody else, you know that this is what Jesus is asking of you by way of obedience to be baptized. We're not doing the baptism, by the way, this instant, so I'm not asking you to do anything right this moment. This is asking you to find out if that's you. I would love to pray for you. Anybody else, you, you realize that God's maybe calling you, inviting you to follow him into the water to get baptized. Anybody else? Rad. Cool. Awesome. I want to pray for you in just a second, but I also want to pray for those that maybe you are not a Christian or you're trying to figure out and make sense of what it means to follow Jesus. Um, and I want to give you an opportunity to, to trust Jesus. So if that's you, I'm going to pray. Just a simple prayer. You can just repeat after me in your own heart, and then uh, I want to pray specifically for you that God would help you in this journey of following him. So right now, if that's you, you want to trust Jesus as a person who's not a follower of Jesus to becoming a follower of Jesus, you just pray in your heart right now. God, thank you for your great love that you've demonstrated through Jesus, his death, resurrection, on the cross. God, right now I want to turn from my rebellion, from the chaos of sin that's either both happened to me or that I've created. And I want to trust you to make me new. So I entrust my life into your hands.